and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Welcome everyone to Hope for Healthcare. I have a very distinguished guest with me today, Dr. Tina Shaw. She is a physician and scientist focused on redesigning our healthcare system so that clinicians can provide the best possible care to our patients. She is also a nationally known expert and speaker across the clinician burnout, health policy and technology, and she is co-chairing the upcoming 2022 National Healthcare Burnout Symposium in New York. Dr. Shaw recently served as a senior advisor to the Surgeon General, where she was the chief architect of the country's first national strategy to stabilize the medical workforce and address healthcare worker burnout. Well, welcome, Tina. Thank you so much for being here today. Katie, it's a pleasure. <laughs> well, you know, Tina, you, as we've been talking, you know, you wear so many different hats and you have so many different roles that you've been playing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you even became interested in solving our healthcare burnout crisis? Sure. And I think folks that are listening in will resonate with this because I got burnt out and I actually had no idea what it was. I realized it later, but that was my story. I had mm -hmm. gone through residency. I did internal medicine, no issues. Even intern year, I was uh, surprisingly wow. happy, but tired. And then I remember I started my fellowship in pulmonary and critical care. And um, there were so many factors that led to this. I mean, uh, waking up every other night because you're getting called from the ICU, not really having any break months, just the, the pace um, and the demands and the complexity of who we took care of without having the supports of a very easy way to use the EHR and things like that. I, I actually got burnt out my fourth year into being a doctor and I just remember thinking, what is my exit strategy? Wow, that's so early on to your fourth yeah. year. Yeah. Wow. And I also remember I had just got a, gotten boarded in internal medicine. So I had this sense of relief, like at the very least, I will still be able to be financially okay, but I need to, I need to do something. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but as it turns out, and I went on this journey then, um, of wanting no one else to ever feel this way. And I got really involved with the American Medical Association. And I know we'll, we'll talk about some of the other things I've done in burnout since, um, but it turns out I was burnt out. Mm. And how did that manifest for you, if you mind sharing with us? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I noticed this. I, I remember being next to my colleagues and they were so excited. They would keep talking about patients. They were really getting into the details of the nuances of why the patient wasn't synchronous on the ventilator. And I just remember thinking like, I'm not that interested in this. I, I kind of just want to go home. I'm really tired. This feels more like a job, not like how it used to feel. I got disconnected. That's how it felt. Okay. Interesting. So because of that, then you it sounds like that catapulted you to get more involved with the American Medical Association. 
Yes, that's right. So I actually had um, a really good friend that pulled me in and said, you know, when you when you're facing challenges and you want to do something, the AMA is a mechanism, one of many, for physicians to really change their day-to-day -day work. It's where one little voice becomes one large voice. And it's one of our ways that we can really push the agenda for advocacy and even advocacy to our legislators. So I remember I attended then my first meeting as a fellow. Um, and I was just blown away by how my little voice could make really big impact. Wow, that's that's yeah. wonderful. I'm so glad that you had that support, Tina, because not everyone has that in the beginning. So I, and I'm learning so much from you today about the AMA and what they are offering for, you know, medical students, residents, and physicians. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And I also say it was one of um, one of the places that we really got to push the envelope on well-being. In fact, we held the first summit on resident and fellow well-being and satisfaction. It started off a lot of work with the ACGME um, and even led a research study. And this is all um, finally having a place where physicians could band together to really get things done. So I, I found I found it a um, place that sort of gave me solace as I couldn't quite fix my day to day, but I knew that I was contributing on a national level. Mm. Well, that's great. And so Tina, how did that then um, catapult your career into becoming <laughs> the advisor for the Surgeon General? <laughs> Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you've ever heard Dr. Murphy speak, Dr. Vivek Murphy, I think you know, he has this like magical quality where what the way he delivers his message, you you start to like really identify with it. And I'll tell you, I, I got completely sort of sucked in and also empowered at the same time listening to him speak about burnout. So we had actually met several years back, um, actually, I think centering around physician burnout at a conference. And as he was gearing up to think about his series of priorities for the second tour as Surgeon General of the US, um, now in the Biden administration, um, we had a connection and he sort of said, hey, Tina, like, this is a really important issue. We need to make it a national issue because if we don't do this, how are we going to keep Americans healthy, right? How, how will anyone in our country be able to survive if they have no one that's waiting for them if they get sick and they need medical care? Mm -hmm. And I, I just identified so strongly with that from my personal experience um, to the series of other things I've done operationally and, and continuing on the policy front, and I jumped at the chance. So um, what I love is that the Office of the Surgeon General is recognizing this as a critical national issue, not just for physicians, but for all health workers, and is seeking to make this. And um, I'm happy to share things that have happened in the office, but to make this a, an issue for the public, because that's what it is. Well, and I, I was very surprised and very happy to find out that this is a priority for the Surgeon General, as well as the Biden administration, because they even brought that up in the, um, I think he unveiled it in the State of the Union address in March. Is that correct? Yes, there, yeah. was, there was some discussion about the mental health of um, frontline healthcare workers. Also happy to report that the Dr. Lorna Breen Act was passed recently, which yes. is Really yes. Help us. So can you, um, tell, so can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, if, if you haven't heard of Dr. Lorna Breed, she was a phenomenal emergency medicine physician in New York who was on the front lines of COVID and unfortunately ended up 
dying by suicide. And her family really moved by um, this tireless, fearless woman who then succumbed to suicide. They, they wanted to make sure this was a never event. Um, so the Feists actually, her family, the Feists, they actually worked with Congress and eventually passed the Dr. Lorna Breen Act, which gives around $140 million in funding for the things that we need to create system, systemic change. On one end is ensuring that when, when we do need mental health access, and that's a piece, it's, it's not, burnout isn't treated by going to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, but Many of us have anxiety and depression because of the work that we're doing, especially now. So some of it is trying to help ease those barriers. Um, I know I've, I'm licensed in several states. I don't know how you feel, but every time I do one of those licensure applications, there are these inappropriate questions, right? Absolutely. Yep. I just applied for my medical license in Florida and it was the same thing. It was, and it, it really does make you think, you know, about, well, even if you have coaching or you have to, you know, record that as counseling and mental health treatment. And, right. it's, and, it, and it, it's a barrier to get right. into health. And as a psychiatrist, I see that all the time. So. Right, I'm, and it's, um, it's just not relevant to whether we're fit or not to provide the best possible clinical care. In fact, it's a sign of strength. If you yeah. seek mental health, mental health care because you need it. Yeah, absolutely, and we know that. However, I think having this is having the advocacy and policy in place is one way to address the national stigma against mental health treatment and mental health care. Yes. It's one avenue, yeah. So part of the Dr. Lorna Breen Act is, is funding initiatives to get rid of all of our barriers and obstacles and the stigma. And then a large part is really focused on the things that are not because of us, but are because of the workplace environment, like, really clunky workflows, putting billing above patient care. Um, how many times have you documented stuff that's irrelevant to the patient in front of you? So there's a lot of work that it will um, push us to do and, and empower us to do so we can change our local workplaces. And you know, Tina, one of the things that I want to touch on is that, and I, I do bring this up quite a bit in my podcasts, that you know, burnout is really an organizational and systemic problem not even nationally, globally. Um, burnout is not a physician having depression or anxiety. They, they are separate actually. And um, so 20% of burnout we know can be related to more individual factors, right? Like maybe as a physician, I really enjoy research, but I'm not doing that majority of the time of the day, I'm doing clinical medicine and I really wanna go into research. Or I needed some additional help in coping with difficult dynamics at work or some family issues. That's less than 20%. 80% of burnout is related to systemic and operational issues. And because you have developed yourself into um, a leading you know, national operational leader expert, I think you have a lot to offer in that category. Can you give us just an overview on some initiatives that you have been involved with to help on the operational basis? Yeah, and I love that. I love how simply you laid it out. Most of burnout is due to system issues, due to the way the workplace is designed. And in fact, um, and you know, I'm going to defer to you because of your specialty, but most of us are really, really resilient when compared to our age match peers. We're actually more resilient. Is that correct? Absolutely, Tina. Physicians and nurses and healthcare workers on the front line, we are the most resilient population in America. Right. Right. So clearly, right. So clearly it's not about us, but if you put anyone in an environment like this, yeah. they are going to be challenged to stay well 
and in our case, the the impacts of not being well, and I mean by by a very specific definition, is that we have that increased risk of making medical errors, of not being as empathetic towards our patients, and and missing something. So, well, and, um, yes, yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, well said, yeah, you know, well said. Thank you. So um, I guess I can give one example of some operational work that I've done. In the beginning of the pandemic, like many other places, my health system, and I worked for a, a large health system in Georgia, mm -hmm. closed its doors because we didn't know what was safe, what wasn't safe. And all of a sudden, it was like, hey, let's start doing telemedicine, right? But you can't just all of a sudden start something, right? There's a, there's a lot of concern mm -hmm. from our side as physicians. How can we ensure that this is equally good care? because we can't touch or see the patient the same way. Um, how do we deal with the fact that we don't all have these glorious uh, cameras, right? And the technology to support doing video visits. And so I, at, that, at this time at Wellstar, I was a medical director of virtual health and we had to really go from uh, zero to hero with doing telemedicine. And I actually deployed the well-being mindset to the implementation. And, and it really was going back to my doctor colleagues and saying, what what is like the bare minimum of what you need to get this stuff started? And we ended up creating a three by three table that was just need to know. In fact, it started off as one page. And think, think about anything you've ever received from administrators. Has it ever been that short? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's only about a thousand pages in a binder. It's not even like digital. Right. It's like a paper. Right. So. So this, is, this isn't like rocket science, but, but the truth is because we always want to be comprehensive, we've deviated away from what the people on the front lines truly need. And so what I had done was I formed a brain trust with compliance, with revenue cycle, and IT. And we came up with a grid of what type of visit. Is it a telephone? Is it an asynchronous visit? Is it a video visit? What code do you have to drop? And on the back end, the coders and billers would switch it for whatever the actual insurance company was because they all use different codes. And then the last thing we had was, what are the three things you have to drop in the note so that we know we're not committing fraud? And we built that three by three grid and put it out there. And within six weeks, I watched my colleagues bill for 50,000 virtual visits with having no additional technology. I mean. This is what it this is what it looks like when you prioritize the people that work on the front lines. Oh my gosh, 50,000 visits in how long again? In... Six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. That is incredible. And so did that actually did that impact profitability for your organization? Yes. So we had a, a brand new stream of income in the environment where we were, we stopped doing elective surgeries. Um, our ER volumes had dropped. So I do believe this this had many many business impacts in a positive way. Well, that really gives me hope. And hopefully, if you're a CEO or CMO or healthcare executive and you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you understand this this idea that it's sort of like human capital metrics where when you pay attention and you build in a platform that embraces the frontline like nurses, doctors and their workflow and they have a say in the process, it does improve financial profitability because it's streamlined and it's working for everyone. Yes, it absolutely does. And um, without revealing too many numbers, I'll tell you the the number of denials for virtual visits was essentially negligible. 
And I think this is a big thing. It's not just what monies are coming in, but it's how fast, right? So there's something about when you align it back to telling doctors what they actually need to do, but then getting rid of some of and forgive my uh, my acronyms here, but some of the BS. Yes. <laughs> you let doctors be doctors, you let nurses be nurses, and you really pull away the non-clinical work from them. This is the success that you will get. Absolutely. Isn't it about like 70% of our day is administrative and EMR related as a doctor? Yes, that's true. Okay. That's right. It, I think the statistic, if you, uh, if, I think you're quoting the annals of internal medicine paper that uh, yes. led from AMA, but it was something like if you want to see for every direct hour with a patient, you spend two hours on paperwork, which is insane. Yeah, it's insane. Well, and you were able to do this intervention, get it up and running quickly in a matter of months. And your approach was really to pull in, you called it the, there was three different categories that you, that you worked with. It was uh, IT, it was the frontline input, and then billing and coding. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and I think having having that brain trust together, but making sure that our priorities to serve the clinician team is is the reason why we were successful. And I think that's it's a good manifestation. I think um, unfortunately, there's so much bureaucracy now in medicine that our decision makers are divorced from the very people that are touching patients, mm-hmm. and it's time to reconnect that. Um, well, Tina, this is, thank you for sharing that, you know, more of a personal story of your own experience and your leadership in the Georgia health system. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, I know I'm taking us back to the Surgeon General and his initiatives on resolving burnout. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I'm happy to. And if you, if you haven't seen it yet, hot off the presses, the Surgeon General has released an advisory calling health worker burnout, a national crisis. So I wanna take a moment and just help everyone understand what, what it means when a Surgeon General does this. Is that okay? Yeah, and actually I will post this article on your webpage and in the links in social media so everybody has access to it. Okay, great. Okay. So the Surgeon General is the nation's premier doctor and I think many of us have gotten to know Dr. Vivek Murthy so much more because of this pandemic and the, the big role he's played we're trying to address COVID in our country. When the Surgeon General releases an advisory, it really catalyzes change, not for months, but for years. Um, and an advisory is one type of written document that comes from the office. But to give you an example, um, in a slightly different vein, back in the day when we thought smoking was okay, and then we realized it wasn't, a lot of the work and the policies in place now are the result of the Surgeon General calling, calling for tobacco control and educating the public and then leading to all of the changes um, that we now see with no smoking in bars and on planes and um, protecting our children from e-cigarettes really got kicked off by the work of the Surgeon General many, many years ago. So when when we release a document like this, when the office releases a document, and this one is, um, it's, it's pretty extensive because it is actually laying the blueprint for the country on what is causing burnout among healthcare workers why we need to care. And the reason why we have to care is when we get sick, we want to make sure that our nurse, our tech, our doctor, they are working at the top of their game with all the tools they need to help us. And burnout is the obstacle to that. And then it lays out a blueprint of what all the major stakeholders need to do from the tech industry to federal and state government, to health systems, to us as individual practitioners and to the public. 
So I really encourage you to look at it. Um, and I can share a couple of top line messages if, if that's Please do, please do. <clears throat> so just as you were saying, Katie, that burnout is really a system issue. It's due to your occupational environment, not due to the qualities of yourself for the most part. Um, the first is that we need to ensure that the health and safety of all workers is actually protected at work. And I, I hate to bring this up, but we are within a week's time of this horrendous uh, shooting that happened in a, in a hospital in Tulsa, um, where two of our physician colleagues got killed amongst other people. But this is the reality. In fact, 75% of healthcare workers right now in the last month have reported verbal or physical assault. So the first step is we need to go, be able to go to work and not be fearful of our own safety. So that's the first. Um, the second is that we need to get rid of penalties for seeking mental health, as we talked about. And <laughs> this is in licensure and credentialing. And some of it straight up is it's not enough to have mental health coverage, of which many health workers don't. Mm -hmm. um, but it needs to be during our time. If you're asking us to work from 7A to 7P, those are the shifts I do in the ICU. I don't have time to say, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go see my mental health provider. It needs to be telemedicine. It needs to be easy and after hours for us. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah. Um, the third one is, is my favorite and the one that I focus on the most, which is cut out the administrative red tape, reduce mm -hmm. workplace burdens. And I, I don't think it's okay anymore to say, hey, it's going to take 20 clicks for me to order some basic medicine when my patient gets admitted into the ICU. I think that's unacceptable now. Unacceptable. Absolutely. Can you expand a little bit more on the red tape to streamline? So like if a CEO or a CMO is listening to this podcast, they have a place they can go to to start. Like where do we even begin with right. identifying that? Right. Um, and what I love is there are some evidence-based ways to approach this. So one is coming off of this New England Journal of Medicine paper that was uh, published in the last decade. This profiled a visionary physician leader in a hospital system in Hawaii who literally implemented something called gross, getting rid of stupid stuff. Yes. And you've heard of it. Yes. Great. So just to summarize for folks that might not have heard about this, there was a simple poll put out to everyone and said, what are the, what are the dumbest things that you're being required to do, um, especially when you're using the EMR? And some of it was irrelevant to the type of patients that nurses and doctors were taking care of. Um, there was duplicative work. And so this list was generated by frontline healthcare workers and okay. the administration just worked hand in hand with the front lines to get rid of stupid stuff. Um, another would be following AMA's de-implementation checklist. And so there are already some like basic places to start. Um, but I would just say this, I would literally ask, go walk there, go make your rounds, round on your staff, ask your docs and your nurses, what are like the two things that you would change and how? Because everyone has the answer. They just haven't been listened to. And then post publicly in, in your hospital intranet to say like, these were the, this was a list of stuff. Here's what we've taken care of. Here's what's in process. And here's things that unfortunately we can't fix and why. And that's really where you need to start. Um, and I'll just tell you in VA, I, I like to really highlight uh, Veterans Affairs because they've done incredible work on this front. Um, mm -hmm reducing in-basket message burden, um, trying to even decrease the amount of mandatory um, education that we have to do during the pandemic. And I just, I need to applaud them for that because <laughs> that's our reality. Like we, we are so burdened that we need 
as much time as we can with our patients. Absolutely. And that's a huge one too, is the additional training that they ask, you know, physicians and nurses to do, and you have to do it during your work hours as well. So it's taking away from patient care. So I'm happy to hear that the VA was leading, leading that cause. Yes. And, and I'll just close out, although there are many, many things we need to do. I think clearly this is a multi-pronged effort and it's not just one stakeholder, but if you are a CMO or a CEO listening, um, or you are someone that is still working on the front lines, because I think we have a lot more power than we recognize, we need to add an accountability. Um, we need to transform the culture where it's okay for me to take a break during my 12 hour, 14 hour ICU shift. Um, it's, it means that not only are the senior most leaders being held accountable for business goals, or patient experience goals, they need to be accountable for well-being, the employee well-being and the measures because we have validated tools to measure employee well-being. Mm -hmm. I think once you actually treat this as an organizational priority with a financial incentive, whether it's performance pay or penalties at the the highest, most levels, we'll finally get the changes um, we need to see at the pace we need to see. Well, Tina, you really sum that up very nicely. <laughs> and I, you know, I think we've all been discussing that, you know, that there needs to be some accountability organizational wise. And part of that accountability is measuring the current state of your system and then implementing changes and then, you know, uh, tracking that with evidence based measures along the way so you can see how much improvement, you know, even retaining one physician a year can save the health system up to $750,000. So it doesn't take much to make some really positive impact. That's so true. I love that you called out the price tag on this. Um, it is it is important. Yes. I mean, we need to be talking about the financial impact because, you know, you keep talking about the different stakeholders, but the CEOs and CMOs and CFOs and the C-suite, everybody that's, you know, running a healthcare organization, they're accountable to their board and they're accountable to be financially responsible and, you know, to, to hopefully be profitable if it's a for-profit health system. And, you know, it's, it's, so such wonderful news and hopeful, which is why I called my podcast Hope for Healthcare, um, that we have well-being metrics that can actually measure burnout and the cost to the health system. And so you can see where you are right now and where you need to go and how, you know, even implementing, you know, decreasing note bloating and working on the EMR can make a big financial impact for the health system. It sure can. And I really want to, this is really making me think about the history of the quality and safety movement. And as you'll recall, I think a lot of it got kicked off with uh, the Institute of Medicine, which is now known as the National Academy of Medicine, really putting out the Sentinel report saying to, to err as human. And it really highlighted that although intuitively everyone in healthcare, of course we would prioritize quality and safety, but the truth is we had no oversight and we weren't doing well in quality and safety. And that led to then measuring quality and safety. And then that led to chief quality officers, right? Or chief or quality departments. Mm-hmm. And then that led to financial, uh, financial metrics and boards asking C-suites in these health systems, like what are you doing to advance quality and safety? Mm-hmm. And so we want to, we, this needs to be mirrored because that was a formula for success where we have national visibility in the form of all of these types of documents like the Surgeon General's advisory 
and the National Academy of Medicine is soon to put out their implementation plan, mm -hmm. which takes it even one step further from the Surgeon General and, and other senior leaders in the land calling on this. And then we have to think about, well, how do we stack our boards? Because right now I suspect our boards don't have the full understanding of why this is important mm -hmm. and why when you don't address the well-being of your healthcare workforce, it's going to undermine every other goal you have. So we have to restructure our boards and put the talent there with the experience understanding burnout. And then we need to arm our, our senior leaders and our junior leaders and our frontliners with success. Because this is not something you can just pick up. It requires really, really thoughtful, careful thought because it's a new concept for many. Mm. Wow. Thank you for thank you for unwrapping that idea of how to implement and integrate you know, organizational well-being into healthcare. It, it's, it can be simple, and yet at the same time, it has many layers to it as well. For sure, so, yeah, it's, it takes a village, <laughs> for sure. So, um, well, and Tina, you know, I, and I know I talked earlier about how you do so many things, and on top of what you are already doing to serve our country, you're co-chairing an upcoming National Burnout Symposium in New York. That's right. And I'm so excited about this. Um, this is actually the, I think it's the third or fourth in a series because of how much demand um, we had from the last, the last national conference. Here we are six months later on the East Coast. And this is a very action-packed, action-oriented conference right off the heels of uh, the Surgeon General's advisory where we will have two and a half days of content, not talking about the problem, but talking about the solution and bringing forth what you can actually do. Whether you are a nurse, a therapist, a doctor, a chief medical officer, a chief quality officer, or a CEO. And I'm just so excited to, uh, to be able to shape this. And it's not just you know talking about our current state of the state, it's really bringing about things that are on the forefront, like okay, we've got burnout, but what about moral injury? Um, in my field, working in the ICU, some of the things we've seen, we can't erase in our minds. And what's the impact of that? And what's the role of you know, our, our CEO in protecting our well-being? Two, thinking about how telemedicine is not just a passing fad, it's the future, and it's actually the present of healthcare, and this is how we're going to be taking care of our, you know, our fellow Americans. And what does it mean? And then what's the role of these startups that are popping up? And, you know, is this the panacea and should we all be joining startups? I mean, these are the, the discussions that we're going to be having um, alongside understanding and hearing directly from C chief wellness officers and CEOs about how they're tackling burnout. It, I mean, this is going to be an amazing conference. And I think what's so different and unique about the upcoming symposium is that it is solutions focused. Um, this isn't another conference about awareness. And, you know, we've under, we understand we've had awareness for a decade now. We know we have a problem. This time we're presenting solutions from across the continuum in healthcare. So that's right. That's right. And I can't wait to see you in person. <laughs> you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you and, and, and meeting you for the first time in person as well, Tina. And um, for those of you that are listening, you know, I hope that, you know, we'll have the links for registering for the upcoming symposium. It's going to be in New York City, January 23rd to the 24th and some pre-workshops on the 22nd. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Tina, um, as well as ICD Health um, events. 
Yes, yeah, so that's great. And just, um, I think you, I think you meant to say June, correct? Because we're so close. I what did I say? I think you said January. <laughs> what? I think I was talking. I think I was, yeah, that was my mistake. We had a symposium in January, but That's this right. one is in, on June 23rd to the 24th. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So you don't have to wait till the next January. Yes, you don't have to. We have another one next February, but we're not going to go there. We're just going to, we're going to keep it simple. <laughs> Sorry about it, everyone. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, this has been a fabulous discussion. I know Tina and I met a little bit before the podcast today, and there were some other ideas and conversations that we would really like to address. Um, but today, you know, we this is a full full plate with all of her initiatives that she's working on with the Surgeon General and and as well as the upcoming symposium. So, well, thanks for having me. What a pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Tina. I appreciate you being our guest today, and thank you everyone for tuning in. <laughs> Have a great rest of your week.